Good afternoon, and welcome to Calvary's Way, a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Orlando. Calvary's Way, recorded live at Calvary Chapel, is a Bible study taught by Pastor Gib Allen. Today in our continuing study of the book of Acts, we come to chapter 8, verse 9. Once again, as you get your Bibles, the book of Acts, chapter 8, verse 9. Last Monday, May 11th, there was an interesting news release out of Johannesburg, South Africa. I want to read it to you, and I quote, Former Rwanda PM admits role in genocide. The former prime minister of Rwanda breaks with the silence of his colleagues by admitting his role in the genocide. Now he is being kept separate from other prisoners for his own safety, Victoria Britain reports. The former prime minister of Rwanda has become the first person to plead guilty to charges relating to the 1994 genocide in which a million people were killed within three months." Now, during that terrible situation in Central Africa, that is in Rwanda, Zaire, and Burundi, tens of thousands of refugees had absolutely no place to go. In the camps, they had too little food and too little medicine, and they were easy to attack. On the road, they often became separated from their children and their loved ones. Either way, they couldn't go home because of the persecution. Now, a story came out of that. A man wrote to a Calvary Chapel pastor, a man from Rwanda, and he was a Christian man. And this man was holding a Bible study in his house one evening during the time when these massacres were taking place. He and his friends were praying for others who had suffered or disappeared. And when they were in the middle of that, they heard a a loud banging on the door. And the soldiers came into the house and they ordered everyone out into the street. And as they marched them down the road, the soldiers suddenly stopped and told the man to go back to his own house and wait for them there. Well, the man took the chance to escape to his sister's home, who was a different part of the city. And he found out later that the rest of his friends were all executed after he was sent back. After spending months As a refugee, the man was able to escape to the United States, and now he is in a seminary in Los Angeles. Now, at the beginning of Acts chapter 8, there was a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And as we saw last time, Saul and his cohorts were not just chasing the Christians out of the town, but they were actually killing them. So the Christians were running in fear of their lives, leaving everything they had behind, not knowing where to go or what to do. Like the Christian man from Rwanda, they must have wondered what God was doing as they watched their husbands and their mothers dragged away in chains and their friends being killed. And yet also like the Rwandan man, these refugees had something more. They chose to be more than refugees. They chose to be missionaries. Now, I don't know why you are here in Central Florida. Maybe you have decided just to be a visitor here, already planning what you will do when you get out of here and go where you came from. A lot of people, after they have lived one summer in Orlando, feel that way. Or maybe you grew up in the Orlando area and this is your home. But for some of you, this is really not your home. Maybe there was no work where you came from, so you decided to come here so that you could find work. Or maybe you were transferred here because of your work. But for you who are transplants into this area, into Central Florida, let me ask you a question. Are you a refugee or are you a missionary? 
Even if you are not a transplant here, maybe you still feel rejected. Maybe some of you even feel persecuted, maybe in your workplace, maybe with your family. But let me ask the question again. Are you a refugee or are you a missionary? Do you know the difference? Do you know the difference between a missionary and a refugee? Well, first of all, the refugee is always thinking about where they came from. They are escaping from Jerusalem. They are fleeing from Rwanda. They were happy there, but not happy now, and if they could only have their old life back, then everything would be all right. But the missionary is not a Jew or a Rwandan or an American, but a citizen of heaven. The missionary gets his joy not from where he is from, but where he is going. Now, this is what happened to the Christians in Acts. After these Christians left Jerusalem, they never looked back. Secondly, the refugee is ruled by fear. They are afraid to go back, afraid to go forward, afraid of the future, and afraid of the past. The refugee tries desperately to hold on to a small place where they can hide and try to recreate their old world in a new place. That's why we have places like Little Italy, Little Tokyo, Chinatown in American cities. But the missionary is ruled by the spirit of love. They are not afraid of the new place. Instead, they are motivated by love to reach out to their new neighbors with the good news of Jesus. Now, this is what happened to a man by the name of Philip. All of the Christians had been persecuted and scattered from Jerusalem. At that time, about 50,000 of them. And it talks about Philip beginning now at verse 5, chapter 8. It says, Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed, and there was great joy in that city. Now, Samaria is only 35 miles from Jerusalem, but it was a totally different world. You see, the Jews and the Samaritans had nothing to do with each other. The religious Jews considered the Samaritans lower than even the Gentiles because they were Jews that had intermarried with Gentiles, and so they did their best to avoid them. They considered them nothing but low-class half-breeds, and Jews would walk miles out of their way just to avoid setting a foot on Samaritan soil. Now, as Philip fled for his life out of Jerusalem, God drops him right in the middle of Samaria. And if Philip were a refugee, he would have looked back to Jerusalem thinking, I'm a Jew. I'm a full-blooded Jew. Why should I associate with these low-class half-breeds? And then he would have looked with fear, thinking, you know, I've just been chased out of Jerusalem because of what I believe in Jesus, and what will they do to me here if I open my mouth? But instead, Philip looked with the eyes of a missionary. He saw that these people were in need of the gospel, just like he was at one time, and he preached the good news. Instead of fear, love persuaded him to forget about danger and concentrate on the need before him, hurting people who needed the power of God to heal and to save. Now, this was a great time of adversity in the life of Philip, as you can imagine. And there will be times of adversity in our lives as well. It might be persecution. It could be. It could be natural disaster. 
It could be losing a loved one or losing a job. When circumstances force us into new situations, we always have a choice. We can choose to be refugees, wishing for the good old days, paralyzed by our fear of the future, or we can choose to be missionaries, our eyes on the hope of God's kingdom, our motivation, the love of Christ for those who are around us. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. I encourage you to immerse yourself in the text, and by that we mean that you put yourself there. I mean, what would you do if you found yourself dropped into a city with no church, no Christians, no fellowship, and a whole lot of people that didn't know Jesus and hated you because you thought you were better than they? I mean, what would you do? Well, you know, some of you would probably start praying that God would raise up a Calvary Chapel, and, uh, or maybe put a radio station in so that you could hear some good teaching. But that's not what Philip did. Philip preached Christ to them. See, that is what he had seen the apostles do in Jerusalem. In fact, that's how he got saved. So now he was going to follow that example and preach Jesus in Samaria. And people were responding by believing Philip's message and receiving Jesus Christ. And as they did, then miracles started to happen. And many who were lame or paralyzed were healed. And some who were demon-possessed had the demons cast out of them. And when you think about it, this must have been really wild as far as Philip was concerned. I mean, Philip was just a normal guy, just an average guy. He wasn't one of the apostles. He had never seen Jesus in the flesh. He was relatively a new Christian that had been recognized and raised up in the church at Jerusalem to the position of deacon. We saw that in Acts chapter 6. And I'm sure he still didn't even know how that happened. I mean, it wasn't a big deal to him because his main responsibility was there just to wait on tables. That's what he was to do. Wait on tables, make sure that those that needed benevolence would receive it. You see, it was the apostles that were out preaching and teaching and healing the sick, not Deacon Philip. He was just one of the guys, you know, setting up chairs, tearing down chairs, setting up tables. But you see, all along, God was preparing him for something more. God was equipping him for another work, and that was to take the gospel to Samaria. Now, I wonder what God is preparing you for. You see, everything that you did in the past, everything you went through in the past, prepared you for the present ministry that you now have if you are obedient to the Lord and you now have a ministry. You're ministering to others. And what you are doing now and going through now is merely preparation for what God wants to do in the future. You see, that's why God wants you to soak it up. That's why he wants you to redeem the time by taking advantage of the opportunities and the resources that he has put around you. But you know, what is so sad is, is that most Christians have no clue that what they are being faced with now is preparation for the future. All they can see are the pressures and the bummers and the failings of others. And so they bail. Instead of hanging in there and making the best of the situation, they bail out and try to find something better or something easier someplace else. Now, James said in his epistle, James 1 and verse 2, he said that we should count it all joy when we fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of our faith will produce patience, and if patience has its perfect way, we will end up mature and complete, lacking nothing. But the only way that we can count our trials as being a joy is if we are convinced that God is at work in them, preparing us for what is next. 
Philip was faithful in his time of preparation, and that allowed God to use him in a big way in Samaria, and Philip saw himself immediately as a missionary, not a refugee, when the persecution came. Now, verse 8 says, and there was great joy in that city. Well, there was salvation, you see, and there was deliverance from the works of demons. And you've got to expect whenever there is a work of God, then immediately there is going to be a work of the devil, a counterbalance, a counter-movement, a counterfeit. And that's what we see beginning with verse 9. But there was a certain man called Simon. Now, this is the man known in church history as Simon Magus, Simon the Magician, or Simon the Sorcerer. There was a certain man called Simon who previously practiced sorcery in the city and astonished the people of Samaria, claiming that he was someone great, to whom they all gave heed from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. And they heeded him because he had astonished them with his sorceries for a long time. What Simon made himself out to be was one who represented God to the people. In fact, he would have liked them to think that he was God's representative to the Samaritans, that the great power of God resided in him. So what he had effectively done was to position himself between the people and God. If they wanted something from God, then they had to go through Simon. And the Samaritans, all of them, bought into this. And they had bought into this because he had astonished them with sorceries for such a long period of time. Now, the word sorcery in the Greek means magic. It means to practice magical arts. And when the scripture uses this term, magic, it is not talking about sleight of hand done before an audience. It does not mean slick little maneuvers in which the hand is quicker than the eye so that we think we see something when we don't. Rather, it applies to the occult as performed by those who have somehow established a relationship with demonic powers and are using them to accomplish what looks like good wholesome miracles which cannot be distinguished from the real thing. Now Simon had a vast influence, Luke, the author of Acts, tells us here, over the small, that is the least, all the way to the greatest. He had a vast influence over all of Samaria. So Philip went down to Samaria to preach the gospel, and he ignored Simon. He paid no attention to Simon whatsoever, just declared the truth of God in Christ Jesus. And as he preached, God visited Samaria with a great revival. You see, Philip's gospel superseded that of Simon, who preached himself and presented himself as a great power of God. Now, just as a footnote, all false faith exalts personalities, makes much over men. It involves the inflation of the individual. These individuals are always egocentric, always pointing to themselves, exalting themselves, and using religious terminology to make a great deal over themselves. That is the quality of counterfeit Christianity. Genuine Christianity makes nothing out of the individual. We preach not ourselves, said the Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 5, but Christ Jesus as Lord and ourselves as servants for Jesus' sake. And Philip, this deacon evangelist layman, just preached Jesus, and Simon was eclipsed by the truth of God revealed in our Lord. Well, verse 12 says, But when they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. 
the gospel that was preached by Philip broke that hold that Simon had over the people of Samaria. When they heard the message of the kingdom of God and understood all that was contained in the name of Jesus, they believed and they were baptized. And it says here that both men and women. And the significance of that is that being baptized under Judaism, only men could be baptized. When the gospel of Jesus came in, men and women were treated the same. And as they believed, both men and women were baptized. Now, what happens next is very important in understanding how false religion works and how the enemy wants to come in. Verse 13 says, Then Simon himself also believed. And when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed, seeing the miracles and the signs which were done. You know, the devil must have been the first one who ever said, If you can't lick him, join him. Because that is exactly what Simon does. Now, if this were the only statement about Simon in the scriptures, we would have to conclude that he had become a Christian because the language used to describe him is the same that is used of genuine believers. Simon himself believed and was baptized. He took upon himself the symbol of identification with Jesus and so openly joined this company who said that they belonged to Jesus. But the rest of the account makes crystal clear that this man was not a believer. He was not regenerate. He was a fraud. He was a sham. He said the right words and he did the right things. He did whatever the others did. I mean, whether they raised their hand or stood up or came forward, whatever Philip may have asked them to do, Simon did the same. You see, he understood the gospel message and he believed intellectually that it was true. He understood what had to happen if he was going to be a part of this new movement but he never allowed God to do the work in him that God desired to do. He never repented from his old way of life and became converted. He was baptized, yet he was unchanged. His heart was unregenerate, as the rest of this account will make clear. And he then became an example of the favorite trick of the devil, when you can't lick him, join him. Now, I'm sure that I don't need to tell you that there are people in every church just like Simon. They will tell you that they believe, and they can even point to their baptismal certificate. But they have never surrendered their lives to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. His will has never become their will. His passion has never become their passion. His nature has never become their nature. His heart has never become their heart. There is a great deal of difference between believing intellectually the gospel message and being baptized and having saving faith in Jesus Christ. Simon had the former, but never grabbed hold of the latter. You see, it is so possible to be so close and yet so far. And Simon exemplifies this. And of course, there are others in the scripture. I mean, think of Judas, hypocrite extraordinaire. I mean, he had no excuse. He was with Jesus three and a half years day and night. I mean, he saw and heard everything that the rest of the disciples did, but he did not believe in his heart. So close, and yet so far. Herod Agrippa, Paul the Apostle preached the gospel to him, and he said, oh, Paul, he said, you almost persuade me to become a Christian. Almost. But that's not enough. There are a lot of almost Christians. They come to church every week. And what about the rich young ruler? He was very close, wasn't he? 
He had done everything except commit himself to Jesus Christ. So close, yet so far. Do you remember the scripture in James that says, faith without works is dead? That is obviously true, but do you know what else is true? Works without faith is dead too. You see, you can go through all kinds of activities. You can go through all kinds of motions. You can buy a Bible and you can sing songs and you can raise your hands and close your eyes when you sing without there being any genuine faith, repentance from sin and faith in Jesus Christ from the heart. See, it's just all motion. It's just all movement. That's why Paul in 2 Corinthians says, examine yourselves to see whether or not you are in the faith. In Simon's case, there was no genuine faith. If you look closely at verse 13, you can see Simon's motivation in all of this. In the original language, it says that Simon cleaved to Philip, just like super glue to Philip, amazed at the miracles and the signs that were being done. Do you see what is happening? Simon was trying to pick up on Philip's technique. He wanted to see how Philip was doing these supernatural things. I mean, can you imagine how powerful he could be if he could combine these new miracles and this new religion with what he had going on before? Listen, the enemy is never afraid to take the successful elements of Christianity and combine them with the lie. And that is what Simon is hoping to do here. But before all of this can happen, God is going to send in some reinforcements from Jerusalem. Look at verse 14. Now, when the apostles who were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them, who, when they had come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for as yet he had fallen upon none of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, this does not mean that they had not received the Holy Spirit. It does not mean that they were not sealed by the Spirit. They had been, because we know that apart from the Spirit, there is no work of regeneration. These people had been saved. They had been born again by the Spirit. And notice also that in verse 8, it says that there was great joy in that city. Joy is the fruit of the Spirit. They had the Spirit in them and with them, but they had not yet had the Holy Spirit come upon them. Now, as we have studied the passages on the Holy Spirit, we have seen that there are three little words used to describe the three kinds of relationships that a person can have with the Holy Spirit. They are characterized by three Greek prepositions. The first one is the preposition with. The Greek word is para. It just means to be with. It means to be alongside of. Turn back now to John chapter 14. Save chapter 8 of Acts. We'll come right back. John chapter 14, go to verse 16. Jesus said, And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. Now watch. But you know him, for he dwells with you, para, in other words, he's alongside of you, he's with you, and will be in you. And that is the second preposition. The Greek word en n is pronounced in. At this point, you see, the Holy Spirit was with them, convicting them, testifying that Jesus was the Christ, that this man who is with you is the Son of God. But he was not in them. The Holy Spirit was not in them at this point because Jesus had not died for their sins. 
in John chapter 14. You see, their temples had not been cleansed, so the Holy Spirit could not come and take up permanent residence. But in John 20, in verse 22, he came to them after his resurrection, and Jesus said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. You see, the Spirit could now come in and take up permanent residence in their lives because He had cleansed them from their sin through His sacrifice on the cross. Now, when a person now comes, when you come to a place where you accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, the Holy Spirit is no longer just with you, just beside you, convicting you, but He comes to live inside of you. And 1 Corinthians 6.19 tells us that now our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so you have, in John chapter 14, verse 16 and 17, you have those first two relationships. The Holy Spirit is with you. The Holy Spirit is in you. Yet we see in this passage, let's go back to Acts now. We see in this passage that there is an even closer relationship with the Holy Spirit that God desires for us when the Holy Spirit comes upon us in power, filling us, giving us the ability to live the Christian life that He wants. And that brings us to the third preposition. The Greek word epi means upon. Now, as you recall, back in Acts 1 and verse 8, Jesus said, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes where? Upon you, and you will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. They had received Jesus Christ. They were baptized. So obviously the Spirit was dwelling inside of them but they had not had an empowering experience like the apostles experienced on the day of Pentecost. Verse 16 says, For as yet he had fallen upon none of them. Verse 17, Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. They were baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now, why didn't Philip lay his hands on the Samaritans to receive the power of the Spirit? Well, we do not know for sure but probably because he was not gifted that way. Although he was gifted in evangelism and preaching, it is possible that he was not gifted in the laying on of hands for the empowering of others. And wise enough to realize that a couple of his brothers, the apostles, had that anointing, that gifting, that calling he sent for them. And so again, we see the importance of the body working together. See, no one person can do it all. No one person should do it all. Every part of the body has a specific role to play. We hope you have enjoyed today's edition of Calvary's Way with Gib Allen. Thanks again for listening, and we do hope you will join us again tomorrow as Pastor Gib teaches and we learn to walk Calvary's Way.